You can make a really good, good argument that every institution is upside down from its ideal expression. The financial institute, the political institute, the educational, agricultural, medical, the list is long. We're not living on a sustainable trajectory. Interpersonally, right, between one another as a family of humanity or with all the other species on the planet, this is an ecological crisis moment. And it requires a shift in consciousness at large. I'm Dr. Dan Engel, and this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Well, this one was a long time coming, my podcast family. I am pumped to share this episode with you. It's number 424, MDMA and Psychedelic-Assisted Therapy for PTSD and Beyond with Dr. Dan Engel. Before we dive in, I'd like to invite you to join my weekly newsletter. In the age of social media and internet censorship, this is perhaps the most secure way we can continue this relationship and share ideas. I send out an email each Tuesday with the audio, video, show notes, and transcripts for each and every episode of this podcast so that you never miss a show. So join the Lifestylist crew by visiting lukestory.com slash newsletter. And by the way, I will never share your email with anyone and promise not to spam you with digital trash. I just want to send you great content. Again, that's lukestory.com slash newsletter where you can enter your name and email. And I'm going to shoot you an email with all the goods every Tuesday. All right, here's some background on our illustrious guest. Dr. Dan Engel is a psychiatrist with a clinical practice that combines aspects of regenerative medicine, psychedelic research, integrative spirituality, as well as peak performance. He's covering all the bases, folks. His medical degree is from the University of Texas at San Antonio. His psychiatry residency degree is from the University of Colorado in Denver. And his child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship degree is from Oregon Health and Science University. Dude is well-studied, to say the least. Dr. Dan Engel is also an international consultant to several global healing centers facilitating the use of long-standing indigenous plant medicines for healing and awakening. He's also the founder of Full Spectrum Medicine, a psychedelic integration and educational platform, and Thank You Life, which is really cool, a nonprofit funding stream supporting access to psychedelic therapies. Dr. Engel is also the author of The Concussion Repair Manual, A Practical Guide to Recovering from Traumatic Brain Injuries, as well as his new book and largely the topic of this conversation, A Dose of Hope, A Story of MDMA-Assisted Psychotherapy. Now, while the gist of this one was centered around MDMA therapy, we did meander into the more broad landscape of using plant medicines and psychedelics for healing in general. So for those of you who came for the MDMA drop, hang tight as we do get there eventually. And here's a rough map of how we do it. Integrative psychiatry and what drew Dr. Dan into the practice. He shares his beautiful vision of full-spectrum medicine, his experience living in the jungle for an entire year, and embarking on 350 or so ayahuasca journeys. We also explore his newest book, A Dose of Hope, and also touch on his last one, The Concussion Repair Manual, we cover the history of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and Dr. Dan's journey into that practice, how MDMA helps heal PTSD with a, get this, 70% cure rate. I know, it's crazy. You're going to hear all about it. His experience with other forms of psychedelic-assisted therapy, such as psilocybin and ketamine, how SSRIs compare to MDMA therapy, uh, guess which one wins, 
You'll find out. Spoiler alert, it's MDMA. Why it gives some people such a hangover, including yours truly. Where we are in terms of legality in the U.S., as well as his efforts to provide access to the underserved population who would greatly benefit from treatment. And that bit of work, my friends, is really good stuff. And I'm so stoked to hear that he's doing what he's doing to help make this accessible to more and more people. You will find show notes, links, and transcripts for this one at lukestory.com slash Dan. I'd also like to say after having met Dan a number of times uh, in a social setting, I just find him to be a brilliant and incredible human healer and doctor. Just such a cool guy. And I am thrilled to share his perspective and vast body of knowledge and experience with you today. So I strongly encourage you to share this episode far and wide so that we can help build awareness of this promising and really re-emerging field of medicine. It was lost for a few decades and it's coming back. So enjoy the journey and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome Dan Engel to the Lifestylist Podcast. Dan, here we are. Luke, good to be here, man. I'm so stoked that we're finally having this conversation. This has been a long time in coming. Yeah. I, this <laughs> might be my longest, let's do a podcast together and then it just doesn't work out for whatever reason. It must yeah. have been, I'm thinking four years ago. I think so. I think Kyle Kingsbury connected us and you were living in Boulder at the time. Yeah. And at that time, I began to become really curious about plant medicines and psychedelics as they pertain to healing. Mm -hmm. and transformation and all the things. And I had very little experience at that time uh, in that realm when we first connected. And I was like so excited to come out and see you in Boulder and do the mm -hmm. whole thing and do a podcast about it. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason, we didn't get around to it. And here we are in Austin, Texas a few years later mm -hmm. on the heels of a lot of exploration on my part um, since and, and documenting much of that here on the podcast. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we didn't even need to do it. I I got her done, and now we can. <laughs> and, we can you're, and you're still getting her done. Yeah, yeah. I don't know <laughs> if you ever get her done, but definitely, like I remember at that time, I was so curious about your practice and how you worked with people, and it was just such a novelty to me at that time. Mm -hmm. And now, even though I haven't sat with you, I think I have a little more of an understanding mm -hmm. of how these things work. Yeah, brother. So yeah, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. What is integrative psychiatry? And, and how did you get into that, being yeah. the doctor you are? Yeah, good question. So paring down a longer story, went to college here in Austin. First in my family to go to college. I really went to just to play soccer. Didn't have any idea of going into medicine. Um, halfway through my college degree, my advisor said, you know, what do you want to do with chemistry? I was like, I don't know. It was the only thing that was interesting. It's like, well, you have three options. You can work in a lab. You can be a pharmacist or you can think about medicine. Like, well, the first two sound really lousy. <laughs> Let's check out door number three. And so started getting into ER medicine, surgical care medicine. Um, and I thought I was going to do a lot of hands-on interventional work. And two weeks before med school, dove off a pier in Rockport, Texas. Just forgot, serendipitously forgot that it's shallow for a half a mile into the Gulf of Mexico. And I've grown up there. I've fished there. I've fished there the year before on the same place, same pier that I dove off of with my hands behind my neck, hit the, um, there was a sandbar, hit that with the crown of my head, 
broke my neck, C5. So I ended up uh, starting med school in a halo, one of those things where you screwed into your skull. So I had that on for three months. And it was the first thing that slowed me down and started to create the kind of uh, curiosity about the trajectory my life was on. Like I've just been standing on the gas pedal, living up to other people's expectations and um, starting to realize that I was trying to prove my worth to a lot of other people. And um, I didn't want to continue to live my life that aggressively. So taking all of that kind of existential reflection plus a C-spine injury where I wasn't paralyzed, I got into neurology. I was really curious about the brain, also really curious about the mind, so psychoneuro. When you study psychoneuro, you get double-boarded. So my board certification in studying each of those was just this natural extension of kind of a curiosity of wanting to know more about what makes us who we are what it is that makes you and I so different or the fact that you can have triplets born into the same family, essentially in the same time and same location, but they're all three radically different. We have these different unique archetypal blueprints that we all come in with. So I really wanted to explore the mind and kind of like the persona. I also didn't just want to be focused on turning the neurochemical knobs of psychopharmacology it's kind of like not as interesting um so the one thing that was kind of sanctioned (laughs) in my study um that was still relatively in the standard of care was hypnotherapy and i got into hypno and then i found this whole world of transpersonal psychology which was a deeper aspect into investigating who we are at the core of our being related to our choice to come into embodiment in the first place. Like what did we come to be a part of and do? And where is that blueprint and how can we access that blueprint? And what is this experience of what we might call karma and like the past energetic imprint of the soul? And what is it that we might call dharma, which is the future imprint of the, of the soul's trajectory and like what we've come to do, our purpose, our sacred gift. And so all these things were kind of swirling around at around the time that I opened up my first practice, which was to help people get off of psychiatric medications. I did a child psych fellowship too. So it was was helping both adults and kids get off of psych meds. We were working with hypno to get into the deeper waters of like the psychic landscape that was causing the issues in the first place. And then I had my clinic open for about two and a half three years, worked with a Chinese medicine doc. Was, uh, it was in Portland, which is where one of the College of Naturopathic Medicine is. Um, and my first true mentor was a chiropractor. So I had all these different influences, Chinese medicine, naturopathic medicine, chiropractic medicine. I was studying hypno, trying to put that into practice, helping people come off of pharmaceuticals. So all of it was like swirling into this integrative psychiatric kind of a milieu, this, 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 cauldron of amazing opportunity that there weren't a whole lot of blueprints for. There weren't a whole lot of teachers in psychiatry even doing integrative psychiatry at that time. And so I was still looking for something more. It it still wasn't the sole aspect fully. And I didn't really have mentorship, um, but I knew there was more. And uh, I was introduced to ayahuasca. And I learned more about myself in one weekend with Aya than I had in one decade of psychotherapy. 
I relate. <laughs> Check. And so at that point, I was so both inspired and pissed off. I was inspired about what I knew to be possible. I was also pissed off because psychiatry had actually made all psychedelic experience wrong. Like, oh, if you do any of these psychedelics, you're gonna, your brain's going to turn to mush and you're going to end up being homeless on the street. Um, that was kind of the summary statement of where I went to med school and my residency and my fellowship. And in that moment, in that first experience with ayahuasca, for me, I knew everything that I had been programmed to believe about psychedelic therapy was wrong. So I was pissed about the propaganda, but I was also really inspired about the opportunity. So I closed up my practice, moved down to the jungle because uh, I really wanted to understand. Well, I, li I lived in an ashram for a couple of years kind of in preparation for moving down to the jungle. I really wanted to understand ayahuasca and where it comes from and the whole cosmology. And then that turned in, so that kind of would build from integrative psychiatry into what we might now call like transformational medicine. So you were down there for a year. Mm -hmm. How were you different after a year working with that medicine, learning the medicine? So different. Because um, as you said, I mean, one weekend typically is known to change someone's life. I know the first week that I sat with ayahuasca, I mean, just my life was irreversibly changed for the better. Mm -hmm. But I can imagine, and that was, you know, a submersive experience for a week, right? Four, mm. four journeys and, I mean, a lot of, a lot of opportunity to explore. Um, but a year is a lot different than a week, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a lot different. And I went full in. Um, I had worked for those two years when I was living in the ashram. This wasn't, it was a spiritual community and we were based in, meditation, detoxification, raw veganism, Kabbalistic tradition, and also Lakota medicine. It was this really cool amalgamation. And over that two years- Was it with Gabriel Cousins? Totally. <laughs> yeah, you know like, Gabriel. Huh, ding, 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 yeah. Put the pieces together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the Tree of Life. Cool. So I was a medical director at the Tree of Life for two years. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. And I knew, and that was coming out of Portland, and I knew I was orient. I wasn't totally aware of it at the time. I knew I wanted to find a mentor. And Gaber was really the only guy doing integrative psychiatry at that time from a spiritual lens, looking at all aspects of being. And he is a true warrior and just a genius in bringing these different traditions together. And that's what I was looking for. Like, how do we bring all these different fascinating traditions together? My background is not Judaism, um, but I was into Lakota medicine at the time. And I was really interested in detoxification and, and more of that regenerative therapy. And so I lived there for two years and I was still working with Aya at the time, uh, maybe once every couple of months, deep workshops. So it was still deepening me. I was getting more and more ready and more and more kind of called for the jungle. And so there was a lot of that preparation. So when I went down, I went fully in. And essentially married the medicine, did eight dietas with different medicines. And where you go in isolation and you're just working with that one plant teacher. Typically the way that my primary teacher would offer those dietas, we'd open it with Aya and close it with Aya. But during the in-between stages, you're just in isolation. You're just working with that one master teacher plant. And it just drew me in deeper and deeper and deeper. Married the medicine path. Didn't want to come back. Didn't expect to come back. 
um, really found the first time in my life I, f- I felt at home. Yes, it was at home in the jungle. It was very much at home within my own self. And um, so towards the end of that year, in my last two diets, I started having visions of coming back and being supportive to this, to, to this field and being a bridge, so to speak, between the traditional psychedelic therapeutic process that largely is ayahuasca, but is also iboga and is also 5-MeO from the Sonoran Desert Toad and psilocybin and peyote and San Pedro, like all the natural medicines that carry this lineage. So being a bridge between the lineage traditions and the current psychiatric medical model. And my dharma is probably not going to be hanging out in a hut for the rest of my years. Yeah. So, as you describe that, though, I'm like, that's a tall order. <laughs> you know it, what I mean? That's like, <laughs> totally. You definitely were up for a challenge, you know? Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. Well, you know, I didn't think it was going to be a challenge. That was a funny thing. I was like, people are going to want to know about this. Right. The medical establishment should know about this. And I mean, that was a bit of a naive kind of anticipation. I think that it eventually will. Um, but with any huge institution that has a lot of lobby interest, those change slowly over time. And so when I came out of the jungle, it was a rough reintegration because I married the path. I didn't wear shoes for a year. I, there was no Wi-Fi around. There were no screens. This was 15 years ago. And I would go in town only rarely to get maybe like a few supplies my, it, where I was studying was my teacher and his like groundskeeper. There were very few other gringos or people around. And it was just deep and it was peaceful and it was beautiful. And then when I came back into society here in the States, it was just a rough freaking landing. Just seeing how aggressive we live and how short-sighted we are and how privileged we are and how much we waste. And anyway, it was that was a bit of a mess. But if, once I finally got my sea legs, it took two years to get I lived in a tent in Sedona for the first year of my integration because I just couldn't be around people. <laughs> Even a small town. <laughs> Even Sedona. <laughs> Sedona already is a t- living in a tent <laughs> to me. Totally. You know? <laughs> and then I built a cabin for another year just to get back in my body. So eventually I came back and um, I still believed that it was going to be relatively easy to just share the experience that I had, but also share the data. But at that time, there wasn't as much data. And when I was having conversations with other physicians, I quickly became aware that they didn't want to hear about my experience because I just looked and sounded like some evangelist speaking about some drugged out plant medicine experience down in the jungle that they had no reference for. So eventually, I appreciated the fact that if I was going to have a conversation with a group of physicians and giving grand rounds lectures on psychedelic therapy... I needed to first and foremost start with data and start with the data that was available and the lineages that could be pointed to, so to speak. And the fact that, and not to make the current medical model wrong, because that's kind of how I came out. I was like, the, 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 I came out of the jungle. The current model sucks. This is the answer and you should know about it. And that was just not the best way to build bridges. So it was more like, okay, this is a phenomenally impactful opportunity to understand more like natural and organic 
plant-based medicines that will engender a transpersonal process. And oh, by the way, we have a lot of data from the 50s, 60s, and 70s before many of these medicines became illegal. So let's point to those. Let's resurrect a lot of what that data was pointing to. And let's show how that can be integrated into the new model to, to make the current model even better and help the, the, the current model evolve into a new and better system. So it took me a little while to figure out how to share that message in the right way to be able to engender curiosity. Um, and once I led with data, and, and I also called people to action, like our, our duty is, as physicians is to first and foremost, yes, do no harm. And that's important. And it's also to be open to the available information and leave our own judgments and biases at the door. Because if we're not making available to our clients and patients the available therapeutics that have been proven safe and have proven efficacy and are significantly better than the current model, if I'm not offering that information to my clients so that they can make their own best decision and I'm holding that information back because of judgment, then I'm actually not living up to my Hippocratic oath. So once we and, were in, and not practicing science either. You know? Absolutely. Like there's there's one absolutely. there's kind of this emergent um, model of science that is you know, it's like science it, the scientific conclusion of an inquiry is what we want it to be, and anything outside of that is not going to be considered. Right. Kind of mentality. That's not science. Which is the antithesis of science, right? True. It's like good point. Search and research. Search and research. Mm-hmm. Be able to abandon formally held beliefs and ideas when something mm-hmm. more valid presents itself. Mm-hmm. Like I, to me, this is what's. I'm not at all like a science geek, but the part of it that I do like is that there's always more. Mm-hmm. There's v- very few things that are finite. Truly, when you continue to open your mind. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's cool. Maybe there's an absolute universal truth in place um, around certain principles that are just yeah. fundamentally the way they are. But in the material realm, everything seems up for negotiation. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Because, of course, beneath the material realm, you have the quantum realm. And the quantum realm is so malleable and so little understood right. that at the micro-micro, nothing is as it seems anyway. And it yeah. can change just with having an intention about it. A hundred percent. Right? So it's like, that's exciting to me. Yeah, I think your point's a really good one. Like science, there's so much lobbying held judgment around what we as scientists, quote, so to speak, or the scientific community is held dear. And when Rupert Sheldrake came out with his book, Science Delusion, and he and Graham Hancock spoke at the same TED Talk and, and both delivered these legendary talks. Oh, I gotta see those. That both became the first two banned TED Talks ever. Are you serious? <laughs> and, oh, which was just a terrible idea for TED because if you ban something, then people are going to get more curious Now I it. have to find these <laughs> totally. things. I'm going on the dark web. I'm going to find them. Yeah. Anyone listening, if you find it, send me the yeah. link. Yeah, so Rupert Sheldrake, what he does in that TED Talk is he deconstructs all the scientific constants and everything that we thought was like the truth. And shows how they are not actually what we've previously believed. And that's why it was banned because it was so antithetical to what the scientific community was trying to hold on to as like some semblance of control. 
And when we're when we can become aware of that degree of bias and prejudice, then to your point, no longer are we um, able to actually practice that degree of what we might call like scientific bigotry. Yeah, or scientism, almost like a religion of science. Yeah. Which is funny because if you think about it, science is more, it's more of a verb than a noun, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas- It should be the, the search of truth. Yeah, science held as a belief system becomes a noun. Mm-hmm. Now it's Static. science, capital S, right? This is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This box. Out of all of the incredible healing tools and gadgets I have around the house, there aren't many that I use every day. One brand that consistently makes it into my routine is Higher Dose. I usually start my day on their large infrared PEMF mat, which combines the powerful technology of infrared heat with PEMF for an incredible recharging experience. PEMF, if you don't know, stands for Pulsed Electromagnetic Field. And it works by sending electromagnetic waves through your body at different frequencies to help your body's own recovery process. It's uh, relaxing while energizing at the same time, which is incredible. So I use the smaller mat here in the studio since it fits comfortably in an office chair or on the sofa and the regular size mat for meditating or napping. You can also do yoga on the big one if you were so inclined. And I'm also a longtime infrared sauna user, but they can be both bulky and expensive. So if you don't have the budget or the room for a full-size sauna, the higher dose sauna blanket is a game changer. It's portable and super easy to use and store when you're not using it. You just turn it on, put on some cotton clothing, wrap yourself up like a burrito, and sweat like crazy. The sauna blanket's got an amethyst layer to deepen the benefits of infrared, a tourmaline layer that generates negative ions, a charcoal layer to bind any pollutants that come out of your body, and a clay layer, which is balancing for the heat. So this is really cool stuff, and you can snatch yourself your very own infrared sauna blanket or PEMF mat at higherdose.com today. And if you use my exclusive promo code LUKE15 at checkout, you'll save 15% off. That's higherdose.com, D-O-S-E. And the promo code again is LUKE15. So back to the the data. So you so you, so you come back and you're like, okay, I have to kind of um, you know realize what I'm up against, for lack of a better term, and I can't just come in and be this evangelist. So mm. I'm going to go to the data, as mm. you indicated. What was the most substantial? Because I I really want to talk about MDMA today, because mm-hmm. you know a lot about it. You've got a book about the you know the therapeutic use of it and all that. But it's just something I haven't talked about a lot on the show, and I'm just fascinated by. Um, when you started looking into the the data, you know, from the 50s, 60s, kind of before the drug culture was starting to be um, demonized mm-hmm. for drugs like LSD and psilocybin and whatever else was around, what was the largest body of data around in terms mm-hmm. of substance? Was it LSD or, you know, what could you point to and say, look, there were studies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great question. So the four primary ones that I was pointing to at the time was um, DMT for the spiritual process that Rick Strassman had in the mid-90s. He was studying NNDMT in a very clinical setting. His research kind of orientation at that time had to be 
looking at the physiologic effects of, of DMT because he wasn't going to get a research pass for the spiritual effects, but he knew that that was going to come in. That was evidential. How many people had transformational, oftentimes conversion level experiences of being able to like reclaim the divinity of their own lives. MAPS was starting to put out their really good MDMA therapeutic data. First phase one kind of rollout was like 83% cure rate for chronic severe PTSD, which was amazing. That's, and I, I want to highlight the word cure. Too, <laughs> totally. Because right? when we're talking about something like we're going to with MDMA, like curing something is so much different than symptom management. Like cured means it's gone. Taking some medicine that makes you not off yourself or someone else, while that might be helpful, it's better than the alternative. It's not really curing anyone. 100%. So it's interesting that you use that word. Orders of magnitude different. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I was on psych meds, um, I never for one second had the sense that I was cured of what, <laughs> what was ailing. No. You know, it's just like, well, it's not bothering me as <laughs> much, mm-hmm. but I have all of these other issues that have now developed as a result of taking this medication. 100%. Like being totally addicted to it for one. Yeah. Compared to the standard model of pharmaceutical intervention and cognitive behavioral therapy, MDMA therapy for PTSD is orders of magnitude improved because the standard of care is like 30 to 40% improvement rate. Now we're talking about 60 to 80%, depending on if you're looking at phase one, phase two, or phase three trials, 60 to 80% cure rate. So it's not just like 2x benefit. It's several fold benefit because you're actually talking about a curative process at 60 to 80% versus only 30 to 40% improvement rate, which means only 30 to 40% people get improvement of their symptoms. And then those tend to relapse if they come off the pharmaceuticals because nobody, at least in the medical training that I was taught, no physicians are really skilled at helping people come off of psychiatric medications in the first place. So then coming back to the other two that you were mentioning, LSD has, is the most widely studied psychedelic therapeutic on the planet up to this point. 50,000 or so case reports. And that was in the 50s, 60s. Really? And yeah. Wow. A ton. Damn. I know. Right? I would think the world would be better now (laughs) like that's is it how what's the tipping point there of like you know shouldn't there be a critical mass yeah exactly (laughs) where that's i think about that sometimes especially with uh, 5-meo dmt Mm -hmm. anytime i've had that experience i mean you know this is quite common i think for people when they journey they're like everyone needs to do this but with that one in particular i mean i'll look at someone that i judge or determined to be really super unconscious leaders and such, or even sometimes quite diabolically evil and think, God, if someone would just give them bufo, they'd straighten out and there'd be this trickle down effect into culture and we'd all be winning, you know, but obviously the duality that we find ourselves in is, seems to be created for a reason. So I've, you know, over time surrendered the desire to like change the world in that way, but It might be part of the embodiment contract. Yeah, exactly. To experience that duality. Exactly. And ironically enough, I've had the most profound, not just realization of that, but truly experience of that with 5-AMEO-DMT, where I've really made peace with duality because you're so far outside of it for a few moments Mm -hmm. that you see that, well, what I've been shown, I think, is that the harsh contrast of the duality that we live in is absolutely divinely created and perfect Mm -hmm. 
not only did I sign up for it willingly and knowingly to some degree at some soul level, but also that like there's no part of it that's not God. Mm-hmm. Amen. It's like Bufo, just 100%. Not, and not in a theoretical way, but a knowing mm-hmm. that that is in fact mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is pretty cool. It, it's and it's also intense, you know, to come from that place of non-duality or at least relative non-duality at a soul level prior to embodiment, like where consciousness is before and after a body. To have the conscious choice to come in to experience duality in such a in such a in, intense human time as it is right now, and maybe it's always been intense, and maybe duality is always intense just by itself. Um, but it's a really dynamic time in human history. So for us to be able to choose to come in to accelerate our soul's growth and evolution, right? So there's there's some conscious orientation to the right time, the right place, the right in, environment for us to learn what we've come to learn and do what we've come to do. And so when we have those moments, like you and I were talking about right before the podcast, where these clarity moments give us this radical gratitude for our parents, as being the greatest teachers to offer us the exact opportunities that we needed for the evolution of our soul's trajectory. And that was a part of the contract too, that we came in in that family constellation to be able to accelerate exactly what we were meant to to bring forth in that evolutionary trajectory. It changes our entire relationship with life. It's like, oh, wow, thank you for everything that got me to this point, including my parents and all the ways that I, I want to celebrate them and I want to ridicule them or all the resentment. May, can, may I turn that into gratitude? It's just a mind shift, but it's such a conversion experience to actually go from the, the contraction, like, oh, life is happening to me, to the opening and appreciation, like life is actually happening for me. Like, okay, can I, can I move from victim to participant? Life's happening for me. Then can I, can I move from participant to student? Life's happening with me. And then can I move from student to teacher? Life's happening as me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I hope that fits in a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> How many characters is that? That was good. That was good. Um, and so come back to that yeah, fourth medicine. Yeah, thank you. Because that's how I got on this whole train in the first place. It was Iboga. And my sister committed suicide from addiction and um, depression and anxiety, all stimulating from PTSD. We grew up in different households and she experienced this really horrific early childhood trauma that um, she just was wrecked with her whole adult life as a, as a result of. And she had done the standards, standards of care. She had done AA, ad nauseum, psychotherapy, ad nauseum, psychopharmaceuticals, ad nauseum and would go through these episodic experiences of sobriety. And then um, after 14 months of being in a relatively good place, had a relapse and shot herself. And just like that, it was fucking wow. gone. And we were, I was crushed. We were crushed. It was a bomb in our family. And at that time, I was still living in, the, in Sedona. It was about 11 years ago, at nine, 10 years ago at this point. And um, I was still working with ayahuasca, but it was all underground, all quiet. Um, I, I hadn't come out and kind of like, you know, started speaking. It was a few years after I'd moved back, but I, I still wasn't like really beating the drum. And when she died, 
is when it was my call to action. Like I can't stay silent anymore. And so I wanted to understand the first medicine. And I was only at that point working with Aya. I'd been working with Aya for eight years and only Aya. And I was pretty religious about that. It was a bit of a dogma. And I was super in um, relationship with that medicine. And then, so when that happened, I got more curious about other medicines, wanted to learn other medicines. And the first one I went to was Iboga because Iboga is the Iboga Ibogaine. Iboga is the whole plant. Ibogaine is the primary alkaloid of that plant. And I wanted to understand the, the best therapeutic agent on the planet for addiction recovery. And that's Iboga. So that was some of the data that I was sharing with the medical community. I became the medical director for a brief time at Ibogaine Center in Mexico. And um, we had really good data for our addiction recovery rates. And I needed to tell all the physicians I knew, including Grand Rounds presentations at scale about that data. Because particularly for something like addiction, our treatment recovery rates are crap. You well know yeah. our treatment recovery rates are crap. Yeah. But with something like Iboga or Ibogaine, you can have a fundamentally new neurochemical reset in a very short period of time that can be longitudinally tracked over time with continued efficacy and sobriety. As long as there's addiction recovery coaching, our recovery rates after one treatment with Ibogaine were around two-thirds. That's insane. One treatment. Wow. And if people stayed in addiction recovery support, we used a harm reduction model too. So it wasn't like, you know, if people's primary drug of choice was heroin, coke, meth, hard drugs, and they shifted over to cannabis or kratom or something that was legal, a lot less toxic, easier on their system. Yes, I understand cannabis and kratom can also be addicted and addictive. But if the person's able to now hold a job, have better ease in their relationship, live independently, that's a harm reduction model. We call that success. So if that was the trajectory and they stayed in addiction recovery, and we're still doing their work and maybe had another Ibogaine experience for them on the road, they would, they would tend to stay sober. One treatment, nothing like that on the planet. That's insane. Yeah. Dude, that, that, I, I've not worked with uh, Iboga. It, for some reason, it scares me. You know? It's a big one. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I hear. Um, so just, I, just have, I haven't felt called. Opportunities have come up and it's like, meh. Getting better over the years to understand when it's like a true calling versus a curiosity or mm-hmm. novelty or something. Mm-hmm. So there's some curiosity there, but never had an invite that I just knew I'm supposed to be there. But what's interesting about that, that you describe in one time, because I've made a lot of correlations and even a couple podcasts about it as the similarities between the 12 steps as like a long-term integration and I guess just fundamentally... Um, changing of one's character through adopting mm-hmm. spiritual principles, mm-hmm. which is what happened for me. But ultimately, um, the purpose of the 12 steps are to deliver whoever's practicing them as a way of life, a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the co-founder of AA, Bill Wilson, was, um, I mean, famously, the program was essentially founded on him having this, um, what he described as a white light experience, a con- like a religious or spiritual conversion experience where the room filled up with white light and smoke and it got very transcendent and weird and he was struck sober and never drank again, right? Mm-hmm. So he set out to kind of recreate that um, wholesale, right? Widespread with a book and this fellowship and 
the purpose of, according to him, of those steps, um, what was codified in there was this spiritual experience. So having gotten sober myself by that model, um, which lasted for 22 years before I entered into plant medicine, now I'm 25 years or so. But what has occurred to me in my plant medicine and psychedelic experiences that have been done so post-sobriety is that almost every time I've had that white light transcendent experience. And so my inquiry to you or just kind of out of general curiosity with something like Iboga, if it's that one time, how much of it is the transcendent spiritual experience and, and, and direct contact with source, God, creation versus what's going on with that particular medicine in particular physiologically and neurochemically, right? Because mm-hmm. to me, if I think about a, a conversion experience, I would say 5-MeO-DMT is pretty much reliably going to give that to someone if they get a big enough dose of it, right? Like you're not going to walk out and be like, oh, that was no big deal. It's gonna, I mean, it's going to change something. Mm-hmm. So the 12 steps are kind of a very slow, slow burning process of having that direct experience with God. And then some of these medicines are just boom, mm-hmm. you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Iboga, I find it interesting. And again, it's just from not having experience with that. Mm-hmm. Do you think... How much of that do you think, of course, it's individual and dependent on so many factors, but how much of it is the the wow of the experience versus does that have something unique in it that affects addiction specifically? Excellent question. I think it's both. It has a very wow experience. It's such a strong medicine. It lasts a long time. It shows you a lot. It, Interesting, Iboga is not classically described as a psychedelic. It's classically described as an onirogen, which is a medicine that will induce a bit of a dreamlike state. And there's a quality of Iboga where, and Ibogaine too, largely to a similar degree. So it's similar, like if you took peyote and you took out the mescaline, and you concentrated the mescaline and you just gave that. Or San Pedro, you took out the mescaline, you concentrate, you just give that. So that's, what, that's what's happening when we take out the Ibogaine, concentrate it and just give that. So you don't have the rest of the plant. Ibogaine can be a little edgy and sharp because you don't have the rest of the balancing alkaloid profile. Um, and it's also easier to dose and it doesn't last as long. So yes, it's a little sharp, but it's it's a bit more specific, particularly when you're working with people who have a lot of toxicity coming off the streets with multi-year history of daily drug use. Um, and, and even though it's only one of the alkaloids, it's the primary alkaloid and it's very effective. So there's classically with both Iboga and Ibogaine has this life review. These different aspects of showing us different parts of our lives or different scenes of our lives? What is What do I need to clean up? What do I need to set straight? It was, it was pretty direct that way. So you often, people oftentimes come out with homework, the, the to-do list. And to your point, when that's put within an educational framework and a personal development framework, now you've got a bit of the wow factor with the ground and the container to hold that wow factor experience. Now I've got accountability. Now I've got personal practices, ethics, frameworks, a bit of the understanding and 
and knowledge of how to take that really transpersonal experience, that wow factor experience, and put that into action. Because it's, it's in the integration where all the work happens. Because we also saw at Crossroads is that people that did, they had that wow experience, they had the reset. And it's not just the wow experience, particularly with Iboga, there's a neurochemical reset. And, and you mentioned that, and I want to come back to that. Mm-hmm. So yes, there was that wow experience. And those that did well and stayed well had the integration coaching support. And so we might call that a, a 12-step model. We didn't use a 12-step model, but you could have. That could have been an integration aftercare coaching support. Whatever the model is, it should ideally be an effective model, but it doesn't have to be AA and it could be AA. It just needs to be a container of personal development to hold the accountability structure of that wow, of that download, of that reconfiguration psychically at a soul level. Neurochemically, yes. Iboga is one of the most fascinating and complex medicines that we know of. Works on at least 50 different receptor profiles. What? Totally. That's crazy. It's crazy. And it's amazing to see someone go through an experience. And I've had the experience too. Um, I've, had, I've worked with Iboga and Ibogaine because I wanted to understand how they were unique and kind of also similar. And when I went through, and I had had long history of addiction in the past as well. Ayahuasca was really very much my um, healing of those addictive patterns and cycles. And as mentioned, I had worked with Aya for eight years before I ever worked with Iboga. And still there was work that happened with Iboga. And this was 300, 350 Aya ceremonies in to working with Iboga. So I had, I had worked with Aya fairly deeply <laughs> and there was still work that Iboga got wow. to that Aya hadn't because wow. they're all a little different. And so that wow factor, yes, but what I appreciated for me in the neurochemical reset is that I, I didn't appreciate the fact that at that time I was addicted to anything, but it's easy to get addicted to things that are so universal that you don't even appreciate you're addicted. Like sugar, for me at that time, and like screen time, now for most people. Totally. Right. You just pulled my covers on both. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the dance with nicotine. And, oh, and, right. And so for me, when I went through that Bowie experience, all of a sudden now, I had no charge with sugar. Wow. I had no desire. Wow. And, and the, where I was at, um, at that uh, first facility, there was um, like a, a plate of pastries or some kind of like sweet treats the day after. And I walked by it without even thinking versus before I would have noticed and I would have taken one, two, three, or four. And I walked by it, didn't even register until I was all the way down the hall. And I, and I recognized like, oh, I just walked by a plate of sugar and it didn't have, it didn't, it, there was no sticky energy to it. It was clean. And that's what people with addiction r- having the experience of that conversion neurochemical and psychic process is that there's no craving or withdrawal on the backside. And if there is, it's very minimal compared to, that's what's hard for most people with addiction, particularly something like heroin or nicotine or caffeine or sugar, is there's a drop-off on the other side if you just stop cold turkey. Well, thinking about... um heroin was the thing that really did me in um and 
the period of three or four days, depends how long you've been strung out, but say four or five days (laughs) if you're really going after it. But if I think about going back and finding out about, you know, plant medicines or psychedelics as a, as a possible solution to that particular addiction, I can't imagine a worse nightmare than like the first day you decide to stop taking that opiate and then you go into a psilocybin journey for six hours or whatever, maybe have a beautiful spiritual experience. Then you come out of that and you're dope sick for three more days. Like that would fucking suck. Excuse my language for those with children in the car listening to us talk about heroin. Um, But that's the thing that's fascinating about Iboga because you have these Ibogaine clinics that popping up in Mexico and different places and people go there specifically to kick heroin Mm -hmm. or fentanyl or Mm -hmm. whatever they're on, which is, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's the perfect combo. If you can get through the physical withdrawal part and start addressing, you know, your emotional issues that were really what your problem was in the first place anyway, as Mm -hmm. most of us find when we get sober um, God, that's just like, what an incredible opportunity. It, it's a fascinating medicine. So cool. It goes in there like a Brillo pad and just scrubs the neuroreceptors clean. No craving, no withdrawal. One treatment. That actually pisses me off. <laughs> All the th- I used to do what I call a train spotting for those familiar with the film. Oh, that's like, a good movie. I'd get someone to, one of my drug buddies just, lock me in their house basically for four days and with no car and no, you know, we don't have cell phones then anyway, but yeah, just be like, don't let me leave. Don't give me any drugs. And I would just take pills and drink myself into, you know, my version of sobriety at the time, which is not being addicted to heroin. Mm -hmm. Ugh. All right, you guys, let's give some love to one of my all-time favorite products, the old-school Organifi Green Juice. If you want to get 12 superfoods packed with vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants into your body without spending $10 to $15 on a bottled juice, this stuff is the answer. Now, I'm going to be real. I'm not a big salad or even vegetable guy, but I have always been a fan of green juice. However, green juice has some issues apart from the crazy high cost of organic fresh-pressed juice such as the fact that if you make it yourself, it's very time-consuming and messy as hell in the kitchen, not to mention the limited shelf life of fresh juice. And even if you're buying high-quality produce, it's likely that it was grown with suspect irrigation water and NPK fertilizers. I sometimes think about the amount of water in something like celery or cucumbers, for example. So unless I grow up myself or know the farmer, I'm not that excited about drinking it on a regular basis. And lastly, a lot of green juice just frankly tastes nasty. Not Organifi Green, though. With epic ingredients like moringa, ashwagandha, spirulina, chlorella, matcha powder, turmeric, wheatgrass, and beet powder, this stuff is not only power-packed with nutrition, but I gotta say, somehow they actually figured out a way to make it taste delicious, like really delicious. You might even be able to trick your kids into drinking it. It tastes so good. To swoop up some of this sweet green goodness, just go to Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. Organifi.com slash Lifestylist and use the code Lifestylist for 20% off any item in the store. Dude, we're supposed to be talking about MDMA. Because of my plan, sometimes I think of a rough title for an episode, you know? And I was like, ah, oh, I haven't covered MDMA. Dan's the guy. And then I'm going to probably title it that. People are going to be listening and go, oh, uh, hello. When are you going to be talking about the thing? Um, so let's, You let's, should title it. 
we'll get to MDMA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Title it, Be Patient. It comes in the last 35 minutes. The second half. Um, but this is fascinating to me because of the, um, the efficacy, especially regarding PTSD, mm-hmm. which for most people I know that, are, that have been addicts, it's literally just, we use drugs and alcohol to treat our PTSD. We just don't know that. 100%. And so we get sober thinking that the drugs and alcohol were the problem. Mm-hmm. You're left with a festering wound of a soul and a mm-hmm. body and a mind that's going like, I'm still unhappy. This mm-hmm. is very common, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, if you're lucky, you figure out, oh, I got to look at the reasons that I drank and used, right? So 100%. I find the MDMA therapy really interesting um, because you're able to actually go in and do the healing that's going to manifest as whatever form of dysfunction that you, you know, vibe with, whether it be addiction or codependency or just being an asshole, <laughs> you know, because you're in so mm-hmm. much pain. Right? Yeah, whatever that character persona expression yeah. is of that trauma. Because I've known people that have had a lot of trauma and didn't become addicts. Right. They just are neurotic and sometimes yeah. self-destructive or, yeah, you know, harmful to others, et cetera. And then some of us, you know, the key of addiction like fits the lock that's how it was for me i mean just eight nine years old is like oh i figured it out i need to be high all day every day and i can probably not kill myself mm-hmm. i'm joking about it but that was really how it was yeah i mean to your point the addiction is not the the problem it's the solution god damn right yeah yeah and so if we can understand what the core wound is which is what medicines allow us to do particularly something like mdma because it, it, if I can just start yeah, rolling, yeah, let's with it, go yeah. for it. MDMA, it's this fascinating molecule. You'd have a hard time constructing a better molecule for trauma, because what it does is it does pr- three primary things in the brain. Well, it's been a long time since I've talked about specifically MDMA. This is good to get back into it. It increases our ability to witness. It improves the connection between our uh, witness position and our memory. And it relaxes the fear center. So there's less guard because the fear center is relaxed. So it's, it works as essentially a psychic de-armoring. Now we have a better witness position and we have better memory, particularly those memories associated with the trauma. So not only are we looking at PTSD, classic PTSD, we should talk about PTSD too. There's classic PTSD. And what we cover in the book is complex PTSD. The differential being classic PTSD is the veteran on the battlefield, severe war exposure, the experience of having a life-threatening process happen or somebody getting close to death. That trauma being so overwhelming that it needs to be compartmentalized. And through the kind of recapitulation of the psychic process trying to heal that compartmentalized deep wound, there are flashbacks, nightmares, hyperstartle response, on edge, essentially sympathetic overdrive, constantly in fight or flight. Classic experience, classic PTSD. The difference between that and complex PTSD is complex PTSD is something like you might have started to uh, describe about your childhood. It was not um, complex PTSD is the usual, the downstream effects of what we might call ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Usually those are less explicit traumas. So it's not necessarily I got beaten or I had this horrible thing happen, sexual abuse, et cetera. It's more like I was neglected. 
not validated, ignored, ridiculed, uh, emotionally bullied. Abandoned. Abandoned. So when we think of the five primary wounds of the soul, abandonment, rejection, humiliation, injustice, betrayal. Mm. Could be any of those. Usually over time, not just once, but typically also in the formative years. The psyche, 85, 90% of the psyche is solidified in our core belief patterns by the time we're five, six years old, which is largely before we've really connected the, the narrative and the witness to the memory center. That's, wow. why in, that's why in therapy, it's hard to get to the earliest root because we don't have the, the declarative memory for it. We go back to like five, six years old, but the majority of what made us who we are is before that. So therapy by it itself is kind of handicapped in that way. The benefit is therapy is usually a connection with another adult that is well-meaning, caring, intuitive, can help us look at these different... And objective. Ideally objective. You know? Well, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, I think for me, that was always the value in therapy um, was just like getting another point of view, right? Because you get so myopic and at least me just up in my head intellectualizing my problems and trying to fix them. It's like, you know, trying to fix a hammer with another hammer, you know, just ding, <laughs> dong, dong, you know, <laughs> just going around and around and then have to just someone that's, you know, understands the, the psyche a bit and family mm. system just go, well, hey, Luke, have you ever thought of A, B, and C? Oh my God, you know, it just yeah. seems totally unattainable because I'm just stuck in this, yeah, kind of hamster wheel. So you you just brought up internal family systems, right? So if you have an objective, really skillful therapist who has a good toolkit and a good system, internal family systems is one of those really incredible systems. And then you pair that with a medicine like MDMA that gives us a better witness, can help us see not just the the, the real intense part of that kind of core wound event, but can help help us see the whole context which is what we were talking about before. When we have a context of like, holy shit, my mom and dad, if they were the object of that adverse childhood experience or whoever the perpetrator was or the other person on the battlefield or the other person that killed my friend or my loved one or fill in the blank of whoever I've been holding judgment against, persecution against, resentment against, if I can understand their position understand their psyche and what in, encouraged the development of their psyche to perpetrate some horrible act or a series of maybe less than horrible acts, but that ultimately had a shitty experience or outcome. If I can understand their experience, that's very much family constellations work. Also internal family systems to an extent, but very much family constellation. Like, can I understand the primary people that were the environmental kind of container that encouraged all of this programming and my own self-view and belief about life, if I can understand their position and the fact that they were just doing the best they knew how to do given the tools they had and they were the generational propagation of likely transgenerational trauma, now I can have a mountain of compassion for their suffering too. And wow. If I can now start to generate true compassion for my perpetrator, it's essentially akin to cultivating the process of my traumas becoming my teachers and, that, and therefore my allies. When that 
can happen. That right there is everything. Everything. Because there's, I think of everything, of course, just subjectively as I've gone through it, but there's, with having been victimized, and many of us truly have been objectively victimized, right? Myself included. There's sort of the stage, there's stages of it for me. There's like a stage of acceptance of being able to talk about it, face it, admit it, disclose it, right? With someone else where you're like, oh, this thing happened. It was really scary or creepy or hurtful. And then there's like an intellectual process of forgiveness where you start to begin to understand that your perspective wasn't the only one, that there were other players and other dynamics and you Mm -hmm. kind of maybe grow into that. Um, but what you're talking about of having the positionality of, in a sense, becoming the perpetrator, being able to see through their eyes, it's almost like that level of forgiveness and compassion can get to a point where, and this is going to sound weird to anyone that's been victimized, so please bear with me. I'll try to explain my, my own process, is that at a certain point, it's almost as if forgiveness isn't even needed because there was nothing to be forgiven. Mm. Meaning that the experience as a whole happened as fucked up as it might have been mm-hmm. for the betterment of myself and for an opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this is like way zoomed out. This totally. is way zoomed out. So 100%. forgive me anyone that, yeah. you know, is... And it, if I may... Yeah. Can you sh- yeah, explain yeah, no, I, that? I 100% agree. Because that's that's and, what it's been for me. Is just 100%. like, oh, actually, if I zoom out far enough and my heart is open enough, it's not that I would condone the behavior of people that have harmed me or harm other people. It's just I have an understanding of it. Right. And there's like a real sadness for them. Mm-hmm. And just like, ah, oh, love for them. Yeah. Truly. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. It's only hurt people that hurt people. And I 100% agree. And, the, and, and what I would add to that so that we can make it also applicable to somebody that might be going through an immediate trauma recovery process is if we try, because I've been in that same process too, if we try to jump to compassion and forgiveness straight away, usually that's a bypass because we really need to get into the understanding and the feeling tone. Most of yeah. us, if we're traumatized, have been cut off from that feeling it's important to metabolize the anger, the shame, the guilt, the rage, the grief, the sadness, the confusion, the doubt, the hurt, like all of that. Absolutely. Yes. And that that's the middle piece that I missed. Totally. So thank you for bringing totally. that in. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I'm just looking at it from how I look at it now, all right. the things that happened, right? But they're in the process, there was so much of that. Yeah. I mean, just to get to the depth of that shadowy shame around some mm-hmm. of the, you know, some of the, uh, the harm. Mm-hmm. And, and also to really, really feel it, to really feel it and just allow presence in that pain, mm-hmm. you know, that I think you're right. It would be a major unconscious bypass to try to jump to, hey, it was just, you know, it's my karma and like, it's all good now. No, <laughs> there's a lot of not good in between mm-hmm. the event and, mm-hmm. you know, years hopefully um, of mm-hmm. processing that, yeah. you know. Perhaps now, more than ever, humanity is under an incredible amount of stress. Hell, even when the world's not this insane, normal life can be stressful. And aside from just being uncomfortable, stress can take a toll on your body, raising your blood pressure, making it harder to sleep, draining you of vital energy, and making you more irritable. That's why I strongly recommend that you supplement with magnesium daily. 
a shocking 75% of people are magnesium deficient. That number might be even higher among business owners and C-level professionals. That's because stress depletes magnesium levels. And this can, of course, trigger a vicious cycle of rising stress and severe magnesium deficiency. This magnesium stuff is so important that it's involved in over 300 chemical processes inside your body. It's a critical mineral. Having enough magnesium can give you better sleep, more energy, healthy blood pressure, less irritability, a calmer mood, stronger bones, reduced muscle cramping, and even fewer migraines. Sounds awesome, right? Well, to experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium, and most synthetic magnesium supplements just don't cut it. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief and better sleep all in one bottle. This stuff's incredible, and I actually took one this morning before I left the house. I was thinking about that as I record these ads. I'm like, okay, when did I use it last? Yep, it was today and almost every day. So for an exclusive offer for you Lifestylist Podcast listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and use the code Luke10 at checkout to save 10% off and get free shipping. That's magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and use the code Luke10. coming back to medicine like MDMA when it de-armors the psyche and the fear because the fear is it's is evolutionarily advantageous if we didn't experience fear in the midst of trauma we'd probably get eaten in the jungle if the jaguar jumped in the path and we didn't freak out and run away fear is evolutionarily advantageous however oftentimes it's um a process of uncovering the the accuracy of that fear like is that fear in that was that was fear in that moment of trauma warranted and if so let's give it its due appreciation and acknowledgement and then it may still be a residue of that trauma that when a medicine like MDMA can start to massage that kind of fear ego defensive pattern to be more plastic right there's neuroplasticity and egoplasticity when that can become relaxed and the fear becomes a little bit less, then we can go back into the trauma to feel it, to go back into that middle stage and get into the shame and into the guilt. That's where the memory part comes in too, because it's like, oh yeah, actually I, I may have had a role to play or I thought I had a role to play. That's why I've been shaming myself for that thing happening. I mean, if I'm three years old and somebody's being an asshole to me, I probably don't have a role to play. <laughs> I mean, you know, truth be known. But I may have thought I did because that's the little person's kind of trial of understanding of why is this person that's so important in my life so mean or, or mad at me? Am I to blame? Did I do something wrong? And from that little person's perspective, the world revolves around that little person. So everything I think is, is an extension of me and therefore happens and therefore whatever happens outside of me, I've had some role to play. So all of that starts to get unpacked and massaged and like made available. So there was a question earlier, I think Ian mentioned, um, what is it that I think MDMA does? I think it's one of those medicines that when done and orchestrated well in a therapeutic container, helps us become whole with all of our parts, which is internal family systems work. All of our parts coming home, those traumatized parts of ourself, we might call those our, those our exiled parts. We have our protector parts. All the parts are sacred. 
Just like all medicine is sacred, pharmaceuticals have their place. Hospitalizations have their place. I don't think somebody should be put on a psycho- psychopharmaceutical medication without the, uh, also the approach to looking at the causative factor. But if somebody only has that in their toolkit and they're standing on the ledge, I'm going to say use the medicine or the medication. And also let's uncover why that's happening in the first place. So all, all forms of medicine have their place at the table. All of our parts have their place at the table. All of our emotions have their place at the table. Like everything is sacred. Taku wakanwa niche lo is this phrase that I heard that landed so deeply in a, in a sweat lodge for me many, many years ago, and it's always stuck. The translation of that in the Lakota, taku, this is how it's said, taku wakanwa niche lo, everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. Our shame, our wounds, that person, that bleep, 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 fucker, blah, blah, blah. That person's sacred. Their life is sacred. All life is important. Everybody's important. When we get that, then we can really bring all of ourselves. And that's what these medicines help us do. They help us drop those ego defenses long enough to see like all this has been a part of what's made me whole. And my life is sacred because we've all come from the same part of the universe, the same creative spark that imbued all life in the known multiverse. However, we call God or source, or creator, we've all come from that same place. Therefore, everything is imbued with that same degree of divinity. And so I don't know of a more effective tool, efficient tool, for helping us wake up and remember that. And then it's up to us to continue to cultivate our lives in reflection of that awareness so that we're not just circling the altar and coming back to the medicine space trying to get fixed. Because the medicines are also not about fixing us. They're here to help us see truth. One of my teachers, Don Howard, would describe these as clarigens. They're, they're agents of truth. And therefore, when we can see our truth, and we can also see what is ours to do to live the most mm, whole life, integral life, um, congruent life with who, who we choose to be in our life, who we would hold ourselves in, in kind of comparison to, like our teachers and those that we would want to emulate and who would we who we would want to be for our children and the coming generations so these medicines help us catalyze consciousness and and see what is ours to do but they don't fix us and they're not designed to do that because they would be robbing us from our dharma from our evolutionary path so these are very much sacred tools i would call them sacred tools and then you know some of my science kind of like hardware Colleagues would say, okay, now I'm getting off the reservation because we start talking about spirit and sacredness and divinity. And those are like taboo topics in hardcore science. That's why I think we're here to do is mm-hmm. rescue, rescue psychiatry from such a hardcore, stale um, expression. Because psyche not only means mind, psyche means soul. And we as psychiatrists should be agents of the soul and voices for the, the right kind of therapeutic process to help people all get reconnected with their soul. That's so true. You know, thinking about um, what I think has been most useful to me, it's maybe equal parts exploring divinity and getting a philosophical or intellectual framework of what life is all about and how I've gone astray. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. just having an intellectual understanding of negative patterns, let's just say, right? is one thing, but then having the 
the backing of the power of divinity to actually affect change are two different things, mm-hmm. right? Super complementary. Yeah. We might call them like complementarily like feminine principles and masculine principles. Oh, that's interesting. Like the intellect and wanting to understand the science, the blueprint, yeah. the, the, the behavioral patterns. Oh yeah, if I eat this food tomorrow, I'm going to feel shitty. <laughs> okay, let's not do that. Like if I'm, if I'm going to get really crappy sleep, then I'm not going to feel well. So like all of that kind of actuarial, how to take care of the monkey suit matters. But we are also spirits in a physical body. Mm-hmm. We're like, you know, you, it's, it's the waveform and the particle complementarity too. Mm-hmm. So to your point, I think both are necessary. Having our heads in the heavens and our boots on the ground and then bridging heaven and earth to do what we're here to do. So you talked about how with Iboga or Ibogaine, there ideally would be kind of a philosophical or therapeutic framework Mm -hmm. that helps carry that on through integration and actually affect lasting change or sobriety, whatever the goal is. And when I think about um, MDMA as a party drug, we're just used for fun or escapism or whatever it's used for at a rave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't imagine that a lot of people are necessarily having uh, the type of transcendent experience that's going to last. Like maybe for that night, oh my God, wow, I love everyone, mm-hmm. right? But you want to hug a lot or do other things. Uh, but you're probably not going to wake up the next day and be like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, the clouds mm-hmm. apart my life mm-hmm. has changed. Mm-hmm. So... You know, as as the um, therapist or psychiatrist, how does a session go when someone mm. you know ingests mm-hmm. the medicine? Like, how is that container or framework set up? I'm I'm so mm-hmm. curious about how that works. It's a great question. Um, not a sales pitch at all, but we that's part of the storyline to unpack in the book. Yeah, so that a person reading the book can kind of get a sense of the cadence and the therapeutic process. How you how you prep somebody what the experience is like, how you help that person integrate. So we kind of cover all those different stages. Are the, is the story in, in the book, which by the way is called A Dose of Hope, and we'll put the show notes for this episode at lukestory.com slash Dan, D-A-N, for those that want to link to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the book, is this a, is a fictional character? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're giving... It's an amalgamation of an amal- a variety okay. of okay, cool. people. Yeah, that's kind of the sense I got. Yeah. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, back and forth, uh-huh. right? Between 100%. you as the clinician and then your client and yeah. all the inquiries and stuff. It's, like, it's really cool. I like the way you did it. It's very unique. Yeah. Yeah, my co-author and I wanted to be able to present it as a parable and tale of an average person with complex PTSD being introduced to MDMA, getting curious, going through the investigation process, then going through the vetting and the, the finding the right facilitator, then going through the experience, then going through multiple experiences. And that's another thing with the MDMA trials. It's not just a one and done. There are three experiences over several weeks um, or several weeks in between with many psychotherapeutic sessions in between to create the framework. And then the integration process afterwards. So that medicine kind of process when you're talking about the differential between a recreational experience and a therapeutic experience recreational might be at a rave crushing it on a six-hour you know playlist and dance set and really living it large with my friends and coming to that full embodied experience of love and connection that's amazing we all need more connection in our life we all need more love in our life uh i'm not here to 
say that uh, MDMA should be completely legalized recreationally um, because it needs to, at least if that was going to be done, that needs to be done with education because in, there are ways to do that dangerously. Most of the time, if people experienced MDMA and it was dangerous, they would be, be it would be because they were dehydrated, mineral imbalance. Um, it does also increase your blood rate and heart rate another 20 to 30 points. So if somebody has cardiovascular disease, it's not totally a neutral medicine. Um, that's part of the screening, screen out contraindications, vet people's readiness. So if let's just say a person was healthy and having a recreational MDMA experience and somebody was healthy and having a therapeutic experience and how would those be different? The recreational experience is largely externalized. The focal point is outward versus therapeutically, the focal point is inward. So it's all set in setting, how we're staging the setting, um, the physical environment, the person's mindset, their intention, what we're going for. Recreational is like, okay, let's play and reach the high celebration realms. Therapeutically, particularly with something like MDMA, because it's a PTSD-oriented medication or medicine, usually the orientation is like, okay, let's get into the deeper waters. Who are you? How's your life? Are you symptomatic with a diagnosis of PTSD or depression or addiction or anxiety or whatever it is? Tell me about that. How has that colored your life? Where did that come from? Who is involved? Tell me the story. Like, let's, get, let's start unpacking the story. And then in the midst of the medicine experience, the orientation is, okay, let's explore some of those shadow realms. Let's see if, if, if what you've told me is actually representative of the core wound. If it is classic PTSD and like, oh yeah, on the battlefield, I almost got blown up or I saw my best friend blown up. I mean, that's very clear. But with complex PTSD, as mentioned, some of the early wounding is very early. And so it might be hard to access. So we, this is one of the things I love about psychedelic therapy is we, we make plans and God laughs. We right. might think we're going for something and then totally. something else comes up. Totally. And if we can have yeah. the availability to explore that thing, that might be the very thing right. or it might be the doorway to that very thing. Yes, yes. Right? So if we can just keep processing what's on top and then see what the next layer holds and then process that and see what the next layer holds and you just keep letting it unfold and usually it'll come down to a core event or a core experience. God, so true. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of multiple occasions um, in which I wanted to work on something, had an intention in an experience like this. I mean, not with the therapist, but facilitators and, and such. And, you know, I could feel this kind of shadowy thing that I'm scared to look at, right? And at some point during the experience, it'll pop in my awareness and I'll be like, okay, kind of take the eye mask off, whatever, take a pause and like kind of gear up for it, you know? All right, I'm going, mm -hmm. I'm going into mm -hmm. a wormhole that's mm -hmm. super gnarly. Mm -hmm. It's just something I don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. um, but inevitably, the, just exactly as you described, I'm like, oh, I want to find the answer to this thing. And then, whoosh, no, you don't. It's like, you're going down all of these other side streets and nooks and crannies that are actually at the root of what that thing is. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if at the end of all of these threads that one follows, that the original inquiry has already been solved, even though you didn't directly have to go at it. Because mm -hmm. it was actually downstream mm -hmm. from all of the shit that, in some cases, uh, for me, I wasn't even aware of even happened mm -hmm. ever, you know, speaking to the memory piece, mm -hmm. right? Of just... Yeah. 
something like um, circumcision, for example. It's like, mm-hmm. ah, that, yeah, that kind of sucked. I don't think that, that, was, a, a little that was a great idea, but you know, I just got used to it and lived my life. But that was one of those things, for example. I was looking into um, you know, just the idea of becoming a parent and fears I had around that and went through all of the shit we don't have time and I would be embarrassed to say on my podcast anyway. <laughs> but that led me through all these other threads and at the core of that piece was actually that mm-hmm. medical procedure. Right, you know, and I didn't. I never knew that. Right, you weren't scripting that. You weren't tracking yeah. that. You weren't going for that. Yeah, but what you had in that moment is such an asset to this work, which is you had willingness and curiosity. So the willingness, the availability, whether we gotta like pony up because we know this is gonna be a a deep dive, or it's like an aya, <laughs> where it's like I feel the purge coming. Like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get ready <laughs> for this one. Is that we have the willingness? We we kind of you know engage it. Yeah avail ourselves to it and we have the mindset towards curiosity to keep tracking and seeing what's next what's there what is that about the availability to learn from it and so that's on the facilitation like so that's that's aiding us to get to the core wound the biggest detriment to getting to the core wound is expectation like oh this isn't what i came in for i'm supposed right. to be tracking something else right or i don't want to look at that or on the or I heard that, you know, on a podcast that this person did Aya and the big, bald, great eagle came down and sat right in front of him and told him his dharma <laughs> and gave him like the transmission and his light caught on fire and it was like he was the phoenix rising from the eye. It was like this grand story. I go in and it's just all like uncomfortable and I'm wallowing in my own kind of, you know, unhealed trauma and unmet purge. It's like, well, that might have also been sacred for you at that moment. It's like the expectation of the expectation to psychedelic therapy is the biggest handicap because we just have to have radical faith that whatever's happening is exactly what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And then avail and then be curious and let it unfold and see what's there. This episode is brought to you by Danette May and Mindful Health, featuring Danette May's top superfood product from her Earth Echo Foods line, Cacao Bliss. To me, nothing feels better than being able to enjoy rich, smooth, creamy chocolate and knowing I'm doing something good for my body. And for me, it not only tastes good, but it satisfies my cravings for sweets and gives me something mega nutritious to add to my herbal elixirs and smoothies. I make a bunch of crazy concoctions with my cacao bliss, but you should know you can just add it to hot or cold water and it packs a powerful punch all by itself. It's made with ceremonial grade, sun-dried, 100% organic cacao beans, turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend of chocolatey goodness. It not only tastes like a dessert, but it's also awesome for removing your food cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing inflammation. For the past eight years, Earth Echo has been a leader in the superfoods market and is proud to have served millions of customers worldwide, including yours truly. What's even better is that right now they're offering up to 15% off when you use the code LUKE15 at earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. That's earthechofoods.com slash lukestory and your code is LUKE15. It must be rewarding as the therapist 
to have the assistance of something like MDMA to just excavate so much of the bullshit, right? And the, and the armor as you described it. I yeah. mean, I know just working with people in recovery and just like, I mean, you can see so clearly or so you think of what their issue might be and just solutions come to mind. You're just like, ah, I have to work through 12 layers of their ego mm -hmm. to even get to <laughs> rationality. And then with rationality, we have to get past the intellectual prison that they're going to put themselves in once they, you know, it's just like, 100%. there's just like a, a line of soldiers between you and that person's heart that you just want to, you just need to get to their heart, right? right. I mean, that's it. You need to get right. to love and they need to feel right. that love. And in that field of love, boom. <laughs> That's that's the ultimate power, and then yeah. the transformation can happen. So I'm imagining just hearing you talk. I'm like, oh, that must be sweet to just kind of bypass a lot of the resistance and just get into that malleable state of just healing, 100%. where healing can happen. I can't imagine doing transformational therapeutic work without psychedelic catalysts. It can happen, and it does happen, but usually it takes a long time to develop enough rapport with someone who's really well armored and might not trust your love of them or their process. Because love and that kind of degree of connection might have been a part of the trauma that now they don't no longer trust. So yeah, it can take a long time to just chisel through that psychic armor. And then to have a tool like this that allows it to become flexible pretty efficiently, I can't imagine doing it otherwise. And that also is to be said, you know, to your point, it does require a container still. It does require the relationship. Ideally, it does require a personal development platform to recognize that this is our work still to do. The medicine isn't here to like save me from my work. It's here to help stimulate it and show me some of the the more kind of like efficient maneuvers to take. So I'm not just going down so many blind alleys. So I think it's going to continue to unfold. Um, and we were already seeing it. Austin's become the social media mecca for psychedelic therapy, <laughs> above ground and underground. Has it really? It seems to be. I think because I'm, I'm just immersed in it. <laughs> it I, I think the whole world is like this now. I don't think that's the it. It's becoming more and more so everywhere for sure. Yeah. And it seems to be like Austin's become one of the, the vortices for this. Well, point. maybe my tipping point theory is not that far off. You know, I think it's close. That it, if at a certain point, um, the critical mass of people that have healed, perhaps, um, I don't know, it'll just catch fire. A hundred percent. Where are we with legality? So, you know, as, mm. as some people are aware, and I've talked about this on the show, ketamine therapy clinics and whatnot are pretty prevalent in the United mm -hmm. States at this time. It's legal. And I'm sure there are a lot of people doing it poorly and some people doing it, um, you know, with, with mm -hmm. intention true. and care. Uh, I can only imagine some of the things going on out that there. That statement is very true. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I, you know, you drive by like the liquor store and it's like ketamine clinics. Like, really? Who, who's, you know, right. anyway, I yeah. digress. Uh, but that anyway is legal and helping yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. I've had some profound experiences uh, yeah. with ketamine, just self-guided um, mm -hmm. that have been, you know, healing and productive and amazing. Uh, where are we timeline with MDMA? Is it is it next in terms of, or do we even know? Well, interestingly enough, so psilocybin is legal in Oregon, not okay. yet federally. Okay. Uh, MDMA is not legal at all except for clinical trials. Interesting, there is this kind of gray zone where you could make a case that uh, those medicines, because they've been proven effective and safe, could be used in life-threatening conditions. 
That's the Right to Try Act that did pass under the Trump administration. Oh, right. So you I remember make, when that happened and I was like, well, that's cool, but you can't talk about it because he did it. Exactly. <laughs> right. like, everyone will hate you. And <laughs> so interestingly enough, you can, you can make that case for addiction and for severe PTSD if somebody's suicidal. So I, there are not too many people have really tested that law. Tested the confines of the, the system? Yeah. Yeah, so, who's going to be the first doc that's like, hey, <laughs> let's see what happens. I might stand up and you know opt in for that um only because i think it's important to be able to stand for what we know to be true and what we know to be right and somebody's going to jump in at some point or we may just wait till it's legal federally unfortunately right now there are still people literally dying on the streets because they don't have access to these medicines i do believe it's going to be the both of those are going to be legal federally likely in the next two years just because of the trajectory we're on and as it, re- as it relates to accessibility with people still literally dying in the streets, not having access to these tools, one accessibility point is not just legality, it's also financial. Because the way it's set up now, the MDMA therapy, because of the way MAPS has done the trials and the way the federal government is requiring MAPS to extend those parameters to expanded access centers, it requires 12 psychotherapy sessions for one person going through MDMA therapy, 12 psychotherapy sessions, three sessions of uh, the MDMA therapy itself, and that's with the two-therapist model. So you've got to pay for all wow. that therapy time. What are we looking at? Like 10 grand, 15 grand? 12 grand. Yeah. 12 to 14 grand. Yeah. So we got to fix that. we got to fix that. <laughs> so we just launched a um, nonprofit called Thank You Life. Oh, cool. Which is like a psychedelic therapy fund. Wow. So that people, There you go. We, you're not just sitting around complaining about it. You're actually <laughs> like, let's do something about it. We this. need to fix that. So that... I mean, because that's what's so interesting to think about psychedelics in general is the substances themselves are not typically hard to come by or expensive. Right. You know, but it's the therapist support. If you think about whatever, you know, 350 bucks a pop to sit down with your psychoanalyst for an hour, you know. Two. Two, okay, two hours. Right. I mean, you have no, to no, have two therapists. Oh, two, right? So you're double built. You're double built. And MDMA versus ketamine, ketamine is a 90 minute process. MDMA right. is a six hour process. Yeah. And you have all those 12 one hour psychotherapy sessions in addition. So that's why yeah. the, and you're also paying for some of the research and some of the like bureaucratic oversight. Yeah, and so, the rent for the, you know, the clinic right. and all. So it's of that, all you know? now like you're looking at 14, 15 grand, 12 to 15, depending on states and. So now you've just priced out what 95% of the population is probably the 95% that really needs it. Exactly. Right. So the people that need it the most, we want to be able to to um get rid of the financial barriers to entry or at least significantly improve a person's ability to have accessibility financially. So what Thank You Life is is a as a psychedelic therapy fund, people will apply for medicine uh, availability and medicine work. And that can be for ketamine, MDMA, or psilocybin. And we're holding the funds for the MDMA and psilocybin until they become legal or for Oregon until they finalize their therapeutic model and start having people go through their process. And so we as an organization, we receive those applications. We vet people for readiness, uh, screen them for contraindications. We also ask them to tell, them, tell us their story. Tell us about where you're at in your life. 
Um, if you could paint the script of what you'd want to accomplish in your life, what does that look like? How do you think medicine work is going to help that? I mean, we want people to be engaged in the process and also um, to be have a little bit of skin in the game too. So to have some of their own payment in the process, it's not 100% uh, guarantee, but we do cover the majority and, or the therapy fund will cover the majority. And then what we also do on the other half of the equation is to match make with those people in the geographic area with vetted facilities and vetted providers to be able to say, okay, we know this person is offering excellent care. You are a good candidate for this service. So we're going to match you with that person, help you track the data of improvement over time because we want to have a therapeutic model, an educational model, and a research model. So we're offering the therapy. We provide the therapeutic educational framework, um, this personal development framework. And then the research piece is, okay, when we start tracking people's beneficial outcomes, how do you quantify a qualitative experience? It's not easy to do. How, how do we tell the story of when Sam, who has PTSD, goes through an experience and his life turns into a life of fulfillment and service and chronic health conditions improve and all these different ways that life became more beautiful, so to speak, and all the people that he impact, he impacts as a result of that. How do we quantify that? So that's the research model that we're building to be able to tell the larger story because it's not just about hard cost negation like $250 billion annually for depression in North America alone. It's not like just negating those hard costs. It's actually showing the positive impact of these medicines in the first place. So our task is to make these medicines available to the best of our ability so that finances is not a barrier to entry and to be able to show the necessity for inclusion into the medical mainstream for these because there's going to be this massive positive impact to the culture at large. Do you see any pushback from the pharmaceutical cartel in that this um, availability of these medicines are going to cut into their profits? Um, being something like MDMA is like, I'm assuming off patent, right? It's like you look at what's happening with... Um, you know, something like ivermectin, right? I mean, even methylene blue, I don't think you can say that word on Instagram or they shut you down now. If anything really? works, yeah. If anything works for, you know, especially when you're dealing with viral infections and yeah. stuff. But um, when something works and it's off patent and can't really be capitalized upon, it seems like oftentimes there's a fight against it, you know, from the powers that be. Mm -hmm. Calling it horse dewormer, you know, like whatever the horse dewormer, oh, it's a rave drug or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. looking um, at only negative consequences that people have had as a result of taking it. Do you foresee any pushback like that or is everyone kind of like, hey? No, I think there's going to be pushback. Okay. And I think MAPS has done a really good job. And, and Rick has had the force. Rick's been working on this mission for 30 years, Rick Doblin. Yeah. That's what he got his PhD in, which is essentially like how to speak to the, feds about how to play legalism. the game yeah. exactly yeah and kudos to him for holding the torch when no right. one was right everybody told him he was crazy yeah and so he's been really methodical and yes there's going to be a lot of constraints but that's how it had to go so that the da would pass it in the first place 
I do think that there's going to be a push by the pharmaceutical industry to create a lot of novel analog psychedelics. For example, there's the, the push to have ketamine. Um, well, this is part of what S-ketamine nasal spray was promised to do, which is all the benefits with none of, none of the downside. And they were describing the downside as a psychedelic experience. So oh. we, want to, we want to be able to give you a medicine without the psychedelic <laughs> process. And you're like, well, that's a pharmaceutical. Right. It's exactly the same kind of pharmaceutical model. Right. The psychedelic experience is the healing. It is, you can't divorce the two. But if we just take that strict kind of model, yeah, I think there are going to be people that try and continue to position the new novel psychedelic analogs as being promised to have therapeutic efficacy without the psychedelic experience so that they can create a new medical patent that can right. be leveraged. So right. It's, it's, it's business as usual. Sure. Ideally, what we're talking about at large is a shift in consciousness that spreads culturally. Because you can make a really good argument that every institution is upside down from its ideal expression. The financial institute, the political institute, the educational, agricultural, medical, the list is long. All of these institutions that are essentially the governing bodies of how we live as a culture at large have a lot of work to do to come back into a sustainable expression for benefit to the generations to come, for benefit to the natural ecosystem and our relationship with our natural resources. We're not living on a sustainable trajectory. Interpersonally, right, between one another as a family of humanity or with all the other species on the planet, this is an ecological crisis moment and it requires a shift in consciousness at large. I think medicine just medicine work has just one vital, but only one of a lot of different tools in the toolkit to help us come back into a place of healing, harmony, appreciation, gratitude, service, reciprocity, love. I mean, those exalted kind of expressions that we know are the core of our blueprint. We just got really diluted by the orientation towards success being these externalized metrics and still chasing the next best thing and living in a society that's really overrunning our nervous system's ability to cope with as much sensory information and kind of like informational short-term click rate packages. Everybody's in this kind of like fever pitch emotionality experience. It's, it's, it's important to get right with the crisis. We're in crisis. The water's boiling. But crisis precedes transformation. So it's just the stimulation of the transformation that needs to happen, which is when we take it like a little bit of a larger kind of external 30,000 foot view. But we have to do both. We have to be a part of the change. We also have to know that this, this experience of us going through this cocoon, this metamorphosis, the, the caterpillar, we've been living a very caterpillar-esque society. Caterpillars, they, they consume 26,000 times their weight in like a three-week period, getting ready for the transformation. Consumption, 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 consumption. Just like our society, very consumer-oriented, very short-term focused. And then we go through this caterpillar metamorphosis and come out with a more beautiful expression. So I think it's all by design, like part of the embodiment contract. But it's, it's hard to see a lot of our brothers and sisters and myself at times included suffering because we live in such a fucking crazy time in a crazy place and, and we know we can do better. 
So we'll just do the right next thing, take the right next step, support the, the right therapeutic model, the right humanitarian cause, and, and live into the, the more ideal expression that we know is possible. Man, thank you. Thank you for doing the work and thank you for that accessibility effort too. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't help but um, be aware that being in a place like Austin, Texas, although of course I always leave the country to do illegal drugs. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's just prevalent in my community, in my mm-hmm. culture. There's opportunities um, and many of them quite valid and above board mm-hmm. and, and legit, you know, and I, I think... I know from getting messages on Instagram, someone's like, hey, I live in St. Louis. Like, how do I find people that do this? You know, and it's mm-hmm. like, it's tricky due to the legality and, and also, um, and the need to really vet a facilitator or therapist and mm-hmm. that they know how to navigate these waters um, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you do. So thank you for putting in that work and helping to move this forward. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's just, it's one of the most important things we can do right now. Mm, amen. In in the stage in, in which we find ourselves as this, you know, gooey caterpillar that's kind of like <laughs> molten in there, and uh, you know, it's things are crazy right now, as we all know, you know. And I do really believe, and this is you know not just coming out of an experience going, everyone needs to do this. This is going to fix us. Uh, but I really think at this point in time that we're being led, humanity as a whole are being led in this direction, mm-hmm. you know? And of course it seems much more to me because it's kind of part of my immediate culture. But I mean, even if you just step back and look at a decade, two decades ago, I mean, everything in this category was just like, those are drugs. Mm-hmm. And then they only have a benefit in escapism and, and that escapism comes with a, a very high price in mm-hmm. many cases, you know? Amen. But the, the differentiation between drugs that only have a utilitarian purpose of killing pain or escapism and not there's anything wrong with any of those drugs. They all have their place too, I believe. Mm-hmm. Many of those drugs helped me tremendously even though they had you know, horrific side effects. But in this realm, you know, what we've been talking about, if, if done in the right context um, and if people like you continue to do the work that you're doing and make this accessible and have a framework for it, I mean, I think it could be the thing that saves us. Mm-hmm. It only takes as many individuals healing, right, and really finding themselves to hit a critical mass, a tipping point mm-hmm. of consciousness, mm-hmm. you know? And how amazing is it that we get to be a part of that process? We won't see the downstream effects fully in our lifetime of this shift and this retrajectory into a sustainable path but we will be a part of reaching that critical mass. And that seems like a, a cause worth fighting for. Maybe in 60 years, someone will listen back to this podcast and go, oh, they were the pioneers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, man, thank you so much. I know, you, yeah. I know your wife's waiting for you, so I'm going to let you go. I could talk to you forever. We're going to have to do another one next time. Happy to. When I come to Sedona, it'll be another good reason. I like yeah. to go places and do interviews like in, oh, pe- nice. in people's realm. you know. So Nice. Um, I'm already putting a part two on the books for you. But before we go, um, I want to know who you would cite as three teachers or teachings that have impacted and influenced your life and your work that you could share with us. Three of my heroes and heroines. Yeah. Um, the first is Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, consistently. I mentioned when I moved back from the jungle, I was in a year of a suicidal depression, lived in a tent in Sedona and just trying to figure out culture again. 
And that book, Man's Search for Meaning, graced my altar. And when I was ready to check out, that was a savior. Because when you know his backstory, then everything that he's speaking about in regards to searching for meaning has more depth. He didn't, he's just not evangelizing some intellectual concept. The dude lived it. And he lived through some of the most horrific experiences that humanity could know. So that became massively inspiring. Um, Krishnamurti, similar teacher, similar depth of um, uh, intellect, strong mind, and um, has a very fascinating background as well. Was seen as a, by the Theosophical Society's The Second Coming of Christ, lost his brother, gave up the, the guru throne, so to speak, in his coming out speech. His coming out speech in his mid-20s when he was essentially going to take the mantle of being like, according to the Theosophical Society, the second coming of Christ. His coming out speech was, there are no gurus. You're your own guru. And that caught everybody a bit by surprise because that's not what he was supposed to say. <laughs> and he has this really good book called Total Freedom. It's a very intellectual kind of process. Yogananda has the compliment to the like heart side of Krishnamurti's kind of like serious mind side. But those two guys from the kind of the Hindu yoga philosophy um, became teachers. And then the third is Joanna Macy. And uh, she was one of the primary pioneers for what we would now call ecotherapy and brought together Buddhist philosophy with systems theory and um, wove a really important tapestry in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s around us like becoming really freaking responsible humans and taking care of our home and not being so short-sighted that all of the next generations are going to have to clean up our mess. Um, but doing that, doing that with a lot of ferocity, but also with a lot of like that Buddhist compassion, kind of like the Dalai Lama. I mean, it's just amazing to see that warrior heart with still love connected. We don't see that in our culture. I didn't grow up with that, you know, like it was like Clint Eastwood and Rambo. And that was like the masculine archetype of the warrior. But to see the warrior embodied with heart and love, because we care about the planet, we care about each other. We care about supporting accessibility to therapeutics for all people. We care that all beings are important all life is important and we're willing to fight for that and we're also willing to try and have as much fun <laughs> and create as much beauty and harmony through the whole process as possible and that, that's those are not easy things to balance you know how to stay light and buoyant while doing really freaking important work in the world um and she she carried some of that like balance um, so yeah, thank you for asking awesome. me that question. And we're going to put those in the show notes again, guys, at lukestory.com slash Dan, D-A-N. And uh, for people that want to look up those teachers, we'll put them in there. Awesome. And uh, thankyoulife.org, we mentioned. Yep, yep. Um, and the book. And we've gotten a photo of it here, if the camera's still on me, A Dose of Hope. We see the MDMA capsule right there. <laughs> totally. There were other things I wanted to ask about. <laughs> now I'm like, oh man, I forgot to ask about the 
Part two. I'll hold my tongue. Yeah, we'll do a part two. But man, thank you so much for your work. I'm so glad we got to sit down and finally have this conversation before you skedaddle out of Austin and head out to Sedona. And I'm definitely going to come look you up when I'm there next. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Yeah, man. Well, my friends, that brings another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast to its conclusion. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and Dr. Dan Engel for your kind attention and ear space. Uh, This was an incredible conversation for me, and I am so excited about the reemergence of this type of medicine in the world. I really think it, it might be our saving grace. I know so many people are suffering from PTSD, addictions, all sorts of different things out there, um, much of which, by the way, uh, I've suffered myself. So it's it's a personal stake that I've got in this game. If you felt uh, inspired or lightly educated by this conversation, I highly encourage you to share it with some friends. You know, if you know someone that's struggling and you feel like this information might inspire them to do some research and perhaps explore this direction in terms of treatment for what ails them, Uh, That would be incredible for you, me, and hopefully them. All right, let's thank our loyal sponsors, man. And finally, let's give it up for our loyal sponsors. These guys make it possible for me to keep dropping these knowledge bombs on you each and every week. Our sponsors today are HigherDose.com. Man, these guys have an awesome new sauna blanket. Now, I had their old one, then I had their PMF crystal hippie mat, and uh, you know now they've got this new zippered sauna blanket. It's freaking awesome. So that's higherdose.com. Then we've got organifi.com slash lifestylist. Right before I recorded this intro, no joke, I put some of the Organifi Red in a glass of water with some paracetam, which is a smart drug. You'll learn about it on another episode, perhaps, if you're unaware. Uh, and I did that for some blood flow because it's now 7.16 Central Time at the time of this recording. And man, my brain was just not working. So I did that hung upside down in the garage for a few minutes, got on the vibe plate, fired up the juve, even though they're not one of our sponsors today. That's what I did. Hopped in the old Morosco Forge ice bath and came back in to nail these intros and outros, which by the way, I don't record at the same time as the episodes. You might've guessed that if you're a regular listener. So thank you to Organifi for creating that awesome product called Organifi Red, which has beet juice and all sorts of great herbs and uh, vasodilators that kept the blood flow going up in the dome so Luke could get this done. Then we've got earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. And those guys, of course, make cacao bliss. And we've got this stuff all over the house, man. It's, uh, it's really good cacao mixed with a bunch of other rad herbs. And finally, magbreakthrough.com slash Luke. And let me think, when did I have a mag breakthrough? I had one last night before bed and I had one right when I woke up. See, I practice what I preach, man. They send me product, I try it, and if I like it, then they pay to have ads on the show. That's how this works. The word ad sounds so corny. Let's call them plugs, whatever they are. There's great brands out there doing cool stuff. I research them, I explore them, I vet them, then I share them with you. That's how it works. By the way, I know I drop a bunch of links um, sometimes during and also at the end of the shows. Just know as a practice, the easiest way you can probably find all these links, including the show notes for this one, which again are lukestory.com slash Dan, is just to uh, take a peek at the show notes on your podcast app. Most podcast apps uh, that you're going to use today have all of these show notes and clickable links in them. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I know this because people will send me a DM on Instagram or Telegram and be like, 
where's this, where's that, the thing you talked about. And I'm like, it's literally right on your podcast app. We do uh, our very best to make all of those links work right and provide them to you at every turn. So there's a little hot user tip for you there. All right, next week's episode is number 425. Oh man, I am also pumped for this one. Both this interview with Dr. Dan and next week's episode were some that took me five, six years to actually manifest. Next week's show is called Where Science Meets the Mystical, the fourth phase of water with Dr. Gerald Pollack. And I've been following this guy's stuff for years and was even set up to record with him a couple of years ago in London. And he didn't end up coming out there to the uh, Health Optimization Summit where we were scheduled to record. And I was really disappointed. And lo and behold, we got her done. And that one comes out next Tuesday. It was really cool to actually explore water from the standpoint of more traditional uh, method of scientific inquiry as outlined in his very famous at this point book. I think it's translated into 10 languages, the fourth phase of water beyond solid, liquid, and vapor, a seminal book uh, for water freaks like me. So that's what's coming up. Thank you again so much for listening. I mean, I know that I can't see you. I can't hear you. You only get to you know hear me, but I do meet you guys on social media, at least virtually and oftentimes at events. And I got to say, I just love people that listen to the show. Every time I meet someone, it's just, it's like fam. We're just on the same page. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you for, you know, supporting what I do here, man. It's been six years and uh, every once in a while, I'll say that to someone, man, I've been doing this six years. And then I think, am I going to keep doing it? Like, how long do you keep doing this? 425 episodes. I guess you just keep going. I don't know. I'll do it until I don't like it anymore and I, I lose the passion for it. But I don't know. There's times when I start to get burned out and I think, man, I get so much positive feedback from you, the listener. Um, and it's just on, it's just nonstop. I mean, there's just messages from people all the time uh, exclaiming how the content presented in this show benefits their lives. And so uh, as long as that's happening and as long as I'm still interested and curious and passionate about learning myself and extracting wisdom from all of our incredible guests, I'm going to keep rolling. So thank you for joining me. I'll be back next Tuesday. <laughs>